all these sort of far left extremists, they're very effective online. So within hours, my Wikipedia was changed to is a fascist. <laughs> and you're like, what the fuck is going on? Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a musician and a friend of the show, Winston Marshall. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks, Constantine. Thanks, Francis. How hey, are we? Yeah, we're very good. It's been a while since uh, we've wanted to get you on. We've been obviously chatting. You've been around. We've been having theological debates. We've been talking about all sorts of stuff. Uh, and we just thought it'd be great to get you on the show uh, for us to have this conversation like this. Um, but I, I have an agenda. You have an agenda? Yeah. Do you? I do. What is your agenda? I am plugging my own podcast. Mate, so how do you do this? <laughs> what you do is you do some interesting stuff first. Okay. And then you go, and by the way, I was talking to <laughs> Alexander Solzhenitsyn's son on my podcast, and you do that later. So yeah. we'll talk about your podcast. Full play, Winston. <laughs> okay. No, we got that, though. That was good. That was yeah, great. It was yeah, good. We'll I'm, I'm glad we opened with that. So, Winston, uh, since we're talking of foreplay, let's let's do a little bit of that. Tell everybody uh, a little bit about who you are, how are you where you are, and what has been your journey through life. Now, of course, you were a musician for a long time. Then you had your own sort of self-cancellation, which we'll talk a little bit about. Uh, but you've you've actually had an interesting life in general. So just tell us, everybody, who are you and how are you here? Uh, I my name is Winston. Yeah, we've established yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we've also established I'm a musician, and I uh, started playing pub circuit around London as a teenager um, with various bands. My first band, Gobbler's Knob, uh, was a sort of, <laughs> was a ZZ Top cover band. The name was inspired um, from Groundhog Day, mm-hmm. classic. I'm sure you remember. And uh, then I was in a country rap band, a crap band, uh, <laughs> called Captain Kick and the Cowboy Ramblers. We were, we were never the same lineup for each show, but we were always at least nine players. And it was a total shambles. And we had an American sleaze rapper sort of smutting his way over some very out of time and out of tune stringed instruments. And that would lasted about a year. And... Uh, we did tour. We ended, we did tour the UK in a um, very messy, d- uh, shambolic. Um, yeah, was, that was that was fun. That was kind of actually no one lasted that tour. It was like an eight day tour across the UK, and and it started about fifteen of us. And by the last gig, there were only four. And I was organising it, and I wasn't even at the last gig. It just kind of like <laughs> disintegrated over time. <laughs> Uh, and then um, from that, started playing, um, sessioning with various bands, uh, still in London. Uh, Laura Marling was one, Alessi's Ark, um, and a few others. And and then that kind of evolved into Mumford and Sons. Uh, that would have been 2007. And that band, just we really clicked. And um, for 14 years it kind of was a bit of a miracle and it mm. and it went very well we we were sort of toured relentlessly and the stars aligned for us we were very lucky in many ways but those three guys are fucking talented as well so combination of hard work talent and and a lot of good luck and it was kind of amazing and um and then but now i am no longer in that band and uh 
that oddly uh, is because I suppose of a tweet. Um, uh, I tweeted about Andy Noe's book. I'm not, in, in the in the in the panda in the lockdown, I was tweeting about the books I was reading. There's like a little minor theme on my social media that wasn't really being followed by anyone, which was which makes the what happened next even more bizarre. Uh, but uh, one of the books I tweeted about was Andy Noe's book, and uh, even I think on Twitter I had like three thousand followers or something. So no, no one, and then within a day or two. It blew up, and it was a positive tweet. It was like, "You're a brave guy. It's an important book," and which I thought it was, as, as far as I know at the time or knew, it was the only book on anti far left extremism in the states. And I'd been living in the states before, so I was, even though it seems like a niche topic for a guy living in London, like it was, it was a topic that wasn't didn't seem that niche from the life I was living in in America, and and also I suppose when the sort of mainstream media were so ignoring mm. the far left extremism and covering far right extremism rightly, but didn't cover far left extremism in the same breath. So I guess maybe that's why I was curious about it. And, and that's why perhaps I came to the book. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that completely blew up. And um, before long, I sort of apologized for the offense it caused. And then over the the few months after that, my conscience just sort of, uh, I just, it felt just wrong, but I, that I'd apologized because I don't think it was actually anything wrong with the book. I mean, there's no book that's above criticism, obviously, even Shakespeare, but, um, well, apart from the good book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so, so even though you know, I, I I kind of just kind of was went into it deep. I was like, "What's wrong with this book? What's wrong with the author?" And there's lots of criticism. There's a lot of fucking nonsense and and uh, lies written about um, the author. And and I, I was I guess aware of that as well because a lot of those lies then came at me. You know, for example, like uh, they change your Wikipedia. All these sort of far left extremists. They're very effective online. So within hours my wikipedia was changed to is a fascist <laughs> and you're like what the fuck is going on mm, and right. um and for and for like a lot of you know friends in their life who don't understand the culture wars or don't understand they'd never heard of the book maybe never heard of antifa never understood the topic they see all this and they're like what the fuck what's you know what's going on here and so that and they want to sort of protect you but at the same time they don't really understand what's going on so it just, it was like a total, it was a very hellish period, um, uh, privately um, and, and publicly, I guess. But uh, so I, as I kind of got to into this more, I realized like I, it was, it was wrong of me to have apologized. I don't think it was wrong of me to apologize for bringing that, kicking that hornet's nest and bringing the, those, you know, that 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 um, storm onto onto my colleagues, onto my bandmates. I think it was right for me to apologise for that, and I stand by that apology. But but I but I um, the kind of conundrum I had was like, well, it's not true for me to, you know, there's nothing wrong with this book, um, or, or or certainly, sort I certainly stood by at least let's put it this way, I stood by my original tweet. He is a brave guy, mm. and it is an important book. 
Um, have you read the book? Yeah, we've had it. Andy on the show to talk about it. Yeah. Do you, what do you think? He's a brave guy. Yeah, well, Andy's definitely a brave guy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, people can quibble with some of the things he says. I personally haven't seen anything worth quibbling over, but people do. And as you say, no books above criticism. But I mean, the guy's got brain injury for reporting on on extremist organizations. So, well, that's actually in the period between my initial apology and when I quit the band, he was attacked again. Yeah, mm. and actually, that footage has just come out last week. So now I've seen, so I heard about it. They've now actually seen the footage. It's fucking horrific. Of course it is. Mm. And and I remember being like, it was just like another like you you know you, you're you're on you're assisting these evildoers, these violent hooligans, in in apologising because you're accepting that they're right, they're they're right, but they're not right. But the the problem I had was that if I say or said, no, actually I stand by what I said, then my bandmates were were going to get in loads of shit like. Little examples that radio stations said they were not going to play the band. Um, for me personally, I was supposed to DJ at one festival that I got, uh, you know, c- cut from the bill um, because the headliner they wanted to condemn me online. A lot of musicians and, and artists, even ones we'd worked with, had not all, but obviously, but a lot had, you know, come after me in a nasty way online or like in an ad hominem way. Um, not just criticism, criticism is fine, but like gone a bit further than that. Um, and so my conundrum was, do I live a lie to protect or stand by a lie to protect the band or protect the band and leave, which is where I, the conclusion I came to, uh, which meant that I didn't have to um, lie or, and they wouldn't suffer for, for the truth that I thought I was telling. And that might seem like, uh, like a like not such a, a big uh, um, thing, but for me it was like quite. It was a hellish few months as well. Like I was not sleeping. I was like, I it was felt like a a, a puzzle I couldn't escape from. I was like, what? Like and and I didn't see a good way out of it. So anyway, but I actually think now it's been difficult rebuilding since. But you know, I'm a big boy. Um, I'll be all right. Uh, but uh, um, c- coming through it now, uh, uh, you know, life's sort of, I'm slowly building it back up again. So it's, we'll see. Well, you know, you're someone who, who thinks very carefully about things. And one of the things that, that struck me uh, was when we, uh, Franz and I came over to your house, you kindly invited us. Your house. So for the listeners, yeah. I'm a huge fan of you both as mm-hmm. comedians and have been following you both. Uh, well before all of the events that I... Yeah, yeah well, actually, you were a Comedy Unleashed and you messaged me and that's how we, we connected. Yeah. So I don't think you were... I you... saw your show, yeah, in January 2020 yeah. at Comedy Unleashed yeah, mm. and thought it was great. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, touch base after yeah, that. Yeah, so, so you weren't a fan of trigonometry initially. You were a fan of, of us comedically, I think, more, more than anything. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but, but anyway, when you kindly invited us to your house... Uh, it's not the tidiest house, and that's because... Sorry, Winston, I didn't mean to offend you. <laughs> it's because it's covered in books. Right. You've got books everywhere. Mm. And they are books from people like Andy No. They're books from people who would be the very opposite. You're clearly someone who likes to take in different perspectives, think about things. You read about history, you read about philosophy, you read... I, 
and it's it, it's it's clear to me that you're someone who thinks carefully in a nuanced way and is very interested. Um, and I I think the the reality of your situation partly is that we no longer live in a world that that is understands that that's possible that you can read a book and think someone's brave without necessarily being right wing or read a book and and think it's interesting without necessarily being left wing or and I think that's kind of partly what you came up against that you're sort of measured by each tweet as in, at, independently of your entire track record as a human being. Mm. Yeah, and if you went through the other books I was reading that I was tweeting about, it was like fucking Mao. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and you know that's actual evil. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean perhaps on you know reflection, I perhaps well I definitely didn't understand Twitter for the the thing that it was. And and if you, the, the whole point is each tweet does have its life of its own mm. as soon as it's out there, and and it's almost like a statement if you're. For some people, it, tweeting is just like train of thought, but for other people, or like artists, I guess, or institutions, each tweet is a is a statement. And I guess I got that wrong, which I'm now, ironically, now I get that. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to learn the lesson. <laughs> Are you tired of using bulky old wallets, giving you a bulge where you don't want it to be? My old wallet was massive, so it brought all the ladies to the yard, which was a huge distraction and got in the way of my esteemed work on trigonometry. Ridge wallets have an incredible solution for you. This is mine, sleek, stylish, and with an industrial look to it. It can fit 12 cards with cash on the back using a clip like this one or a strap. We've got one for the whole team. I've got one, Francis has one, even our producer Anton has one, but he's from Liverpool, so he flogged his on the black market. The great thing about Ridge is that they give you a lifetime guarantee, which means if you want, you can have only one wallet for the rest of your life. Ridge are so confident in the quality of their product, they will give you 45 days to test drive their wallets. That means you can get the wallet, use it, and if you don't like it, you can return it within 45 days. Because Ridge is such great guys, they're gonna give you 10% off and free worldwide shipping and returns. To take advantage of this incredible offer, go to ridge.com forward slash trigger. That's ridge.com forward slash trigger and use our special code, which is of course, trigger. Obviously it shocked you by by what happened with the tweet, but did it shock you, the, the behavior of your fellow artists? Because one would think that particularly in the music industry, you know, rock and roll, freedom, Fuck the man, I'm going to say what I think, what I want. Did that surprise you that there was that backlash? I was surprised by a couple of the artists to, who said stuff who I'd worked with because mm. um, they could have done it privately instead of adding fuel to that fire. Um, again, I don't think anything's above criticism, so fair enough, you know, uh, if they felt like they needed to. Um, but then, yeah, the idea, I'm, 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 and absolutely, it's, as I said, I only had a few thousand followers, so it was insane to me. Within a, within like a day or two, it was on The View and Tucker Carlson, it's like, what? Like, like, how is this, you know, it just seemed like an act of God, which, you know, uh, uh, and, and so... Um, with the other artists, it doesn't really surprise me that I, I do think all, you know, all I've written about this in a, 
piece for Barry Weiss last week, um, her Common Sense Substack. Uh, all communities, all, all um, groups are prone to uh, a, a, a certain amount of uh, homogeneity of thought, um, and that's absolutely normal. It's forgivable. It's definitely not good. Um, uh, but uh, what can you expect, and particularly in the music industry, when it's a, it's a community of people who uh, will have similar personality traits and being open and and the only uh, I, it, it's not that strange that there's a kind of a, a, a kind of agreed upon um, or, or, or a popular opinion within a group, even if it's not popular. No, actually, uh, Barry Weiss sent me a because uh, uh, I did an interview of her. One I didn't do very many interviews, but I did one with her uh, because I just wanted to get my story out, and I didn't. I wasn't prom- like trying to promote. I just wanted to get set the record straight, so I just did her. Yeah, such high regard <laughs> for us. So you didn't do it with us, by the way. I did. I am. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, but Barry sent me a, a one poll, which I should dig out. But the, the Antifa in the states had a five to six percent approval rating, mm. which is the that is the fringe. That's like now in America, five six percent of people is a lot of people, mm. right? But nevertheless, as a as a society, that's the fringe of society, and and that's the extremist. I mean, that's probably what the far right is five or six percent, probably less even. Yeah, yeah, is that right? Um, uh, so. Uh, it was an extreme thing, and and they're very effective. They know what they're doing online. They know what they're doing, or they, it looks like they uh, do. They know what they're doing in real life. Well, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, uh, they're causing causing all sort of all sort of all sorts of havoc and and um, um, damage, and it's it's appalling. Um, uh, so uh, where are we going? We were talking about were you shocked by the reaction of your fellow artists? Yeah, so um, I was I was shocked, but I, again, I, I I sort of understand now with hindsight. Oh, well, Twitter's kind of that's the world I was engaging in, and also I do think that artists generally, I do think there's a problem a problem of homogeneity of thought in the in the creative industries. Like you see this, and this is what I, I wrote for Barry last week: is whatever the topic is, an orthodoxy. Um, is established pretty quickly and even if um this doesn't mean everyone disagrees like for example on antifa i think the only other musician that's publicly outspoken on antifa is nick cave who Mm. um on his blog has written about it criticizing them and um i I know he got pushback from from doing that Um, but otherwise i don't think there's many who have um and because i do think there's probably a decent amount of of consensus within the industry even if society at large doesn't there isn't evidence of that consensus on Antifa but you see you've been very diplomatic Winston and I I understand why because I think you're a far more conciliatory person than I am but it it, but it enrages me it enrages me because the whole point of art to me whatever type of art is is that it should be welcoming and celebrating of a diverse of diverse viewpoints it should challenge the status quo. It shouldn't be just one particular viewpoint is celebrated and everybody else should be silenced. That, to me, is, is anathema to art, surely. Well, that's what has been particularly shocking 
this year with with uh, what's happened to Rogan, mm. um, it's it's artists forming their own, leading the mobs mm. yeah. against freedom of expression. It's and again, I'm not saying that Rogan's First Amendment rights are in question here, although the White House did follow up mm -hmm. by saying, yeah, more needs to be done to combat misinformation. But it's artists like Neil Young, Crosby, Stills and Nash uh, here, it was Stuart Lee here, it was... Joni Mitchell. Joni Mitchell, um, who are closing down conversation. I mean, their whole career, their whole job is expression. So how can they not see the the the, the kind of paradox there. But you actually saw signs of this before your tweet because yeah. you were doing interviews not in a cultural way necessarily with the band when you were touring. Yeah, so for sure. So so I, the last, touring the last record, well, let's put it this way. Like we did a record in 2015 and then we did another record in 2018. So, and we we're doing promotion for then 2019. In 2015, none of the questions were about politics. In 2018, none of the questions were about music. <laughs> and, that's, and, that, and that's a bit pithy and it's not a to totally true, but that's kind of how it felt like mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, and something about uh, essentially Brexit and Trump meant that all the interviews were like uh, uh, trying to get in that, even though the music wasn't remotely political. Mm. It's, not, it's not remotely relevant to the to the music um, and to the product and to the album and to the band, or not in my opinion. Um, and and then there was there are certain topics that, yeah, there was group consensus on in the industry. So doing interviews, I I got to a point where I was, you know, very nervous going interviews because it was, it was so I'm gonna I don't want to say the wrong thing, get my bandmates in trouble. Um, because they're probably going to ask about the you know, politics, um, whatever topic it might be. Um, and even though I don't think there are opinions that are publicly particularly controversial at all, um, that it just, you know, an example, I think there's a lot, I was sensitive to it because um, the photograph uh, come out with Jordan Peterson, who I was was and am a great admirer of and it kind of blew up to be this thing it's like what like and he's this is a guy who sold millions of books he's incredibly popular um he's um uh, changed so many lives for the better and and um obviously he's divisive and there's some people uh, who who dislike him um or, or at least dislike the person they think he is um but and then after that, it's like, wow, well, like if what I consider, I don't think he's remotely controversial. So if, if that, if a topic like that can blow out like that, like anything can go like that. Um, so you'd go into these interviews and you'd, so, you'd be very hesitant about saying anything at all, even though the, you were being asked about it. You yeah. were being asked political questions yeah. as a musician who's not political. And you just sit there going, I really don't want to say the wrong thing. And, and the interviewers generally or not generally, but would often either have an agenda or you could almost be certain that the way they would present it would be not fair. It would be, they would be pushing their own agenda um, because they would care about the topic or uh, you can see this with, with some of the um, legacy music 
um, magazines like Enemy. It's incredibly political. I think they had Jeremy Corbyn on the front cover, and it's like of a music magazine. Like what? What's the, what's? I think that would have been. When would that have been? Twenty. Was that? Was it twenty nineteen that election? Yeah. Um, so you know all these music magazines where it's not it's not politics. We're we're putting we're, we're turning into political magazines with an agenda, and so you couldn't. I was just like, well, they're not. They're obviously not going to present this fairly. So I don't want to engage in this conversation like that. Did you feel? Did you ever have conversations with other artists talking about how? The, they felt that the Overton window was narrowing and how things were becoming more fraught? Uh, so, now, having gone through this experience, I've had amazing artists, mm. very high profile, mm. not just in music, but across um, the board. And, yeah. and I'm not talking about like, all the time. Yeah. Like, will be remembered for centuries type artists. Yes. And I'm not going to name them, but... We have the same. Yeah. You have the same. And again, most of them won't say anything publicly, but yeah. yeah. But we all love Eric Clapton. <laughs> <laughs> Big fan. Um, uh, so there's definitely a, a lot of artists that, that's, that see this as, as um, the ridiculous situation that it is. And, and, and hopefully that will... I, th I sense it will like de-escalate. Like last week, for example, there's a photograph of Skrillex came out mm. with Jordan and Michaela, and and it's like, um, and he's a big artist, and I imagine he's probably getting a bit of flack behind the scenes, but I, I don't know if I hope he's surrounded by good people anyway. Um, and it sense like, and more and more people do that, and it's just like it will expose the lunacy. Of the of the state of those industries, by just more and more people having the courage, realizing that they're like Skrillex is untouchable. So more people like that do that. Do you think it's going to help? But the fact that the music industry, because of the internet, because of social media, because of Spotify, it's losing its power. It can't really shut people down like it used to. Like if you were dropped by your record label in the nineties, I mean that was potentially career ending, and it for many many people. But now if your record label drops you, you can still release your own stuff. You can, you can still have a career. You can definitely release your own stuff and um, you don't need any of that stuff. But music industry is very small um, and pretty much everyone knows each other. So uh, it depends what kind of career you want. If you want to be huge, you do need the industry to get to that level. But if you just want to release music, you don't. You, don't. you can just release music. And so you still think that if you're dropped by your label, it, that's still a ma that's still a career ender potentially. I, I, I think so. I think so. It, it doesn't stop you from putting out music, but I do think it's it stops you from getting to a certain level. It's yeah. a very significant deterrent, in other words, to making sure that that doesn't happen mm. for you. Um, and Winston, one of the things you talked about your apology. And, and I, I wanted to explore this because you and I have talked about this in the past, because you apologized really because you wanted to protect your band, right? Mm. Would that be fair to say? Yes. And then you you saw, you regretted the apology because it wasn't authentic to who you are, but you still wanted to protect your band. Yes. Right. Um, and I didn't regret the apology to the band. Yes. Yeah, I regretted the public the, apology. The pub to exactly. the public. Exactly. That's what I meant. Um, and the reason I'm, I'm delving into it is that I think one of the things that happened with you is when you did apologize, 
there was also a lot of people from the other side mm. who then decided to come after you. Yeah, that was an eye-opener for me. I was like, oh, yeah, you guys behave exactly like the mm. people you, you were taught to be uh, against, the anti, the quote, anti-woke mob. They're, they're just as quick to cancel people as, as the, the, you know, the progressives on the other side. And, and uh, um, you know, now I hope you get cancelled and this kind of stuff. It was really quite helpful for me to see that. I was like, mm. oh, yeah. And um, I would be very reluctant to kind of take that, go flip onto that, that side of things for sure. There's another sort of inspiration for me in that sense. Um, well, there's, I mean, there's someone I've spoke about so much so that it's probably boring at this point, but um, uh, in Solzhenitsyn's warning to the West, and he, he came over and he gave a, a bunch of lectures across the, um, uh, the UK and, and, and the States, I suppose it would have been the 70s or 80s, um, I'm not sure exactly uh, when, but um, he, he comes over and he, could, and he still loved Russia, it was his country, mm. Uh, but he he could very much have, you know, it's Cold War. He could have come and been like, "Fuck Russia!" <laughs> like America and and America, you know, America would have loved him. But he came over and he criticized America. People mm. w went off him very quickly when he did. They that. did. He could have played to the crowd. Yeah. Mm. He could have, and 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 it would have turned him to into another. He he didn't buy into any any of that, and and he saw he saw it for, or. or or he, I mean, that's real, I mean, that's integrity to another level. Um, and uh, that's the, that's the sort of the archetype, really, I think, the dealing with that sort of, the mobs and crowds and um, it's the opposite to like politicians. Politicians have to play to the mob to further their careers. And that's the great thing about an artist is he doesn't, well, actually an artist does in a, in a weird way, but Solzhenitsyn didn't let that affect him. The reason I bring it up is, is something that Francis and I have been thinking about a lot and dealing with because there's no question that we are not woke and against wokeness. We are, we are anti-woke, right? But the, the problem is if you are anti-cancel culture and you then engage in cancelling people because they said something you didn't like or, you know, I see this quite often, you know, on YouTube, you'll get somebody on who's more left-leaning or who may be woke even, and you want to have a conversation with them. And people are I'm not watching this, mm. you know. And it's like, well, you're not anti-cancel culture mm. then. You're just anti-that mm. cancel culture, mm. and you actually quite like to engage in your own thing. Mm. And so, and that's the evolution of all of us. I think initially for us as artists, as comedians, that was the feeling of like this, this industry has become very homogenous and everyone's supposed to have the right opinion i'm against that but then also as you as you move away from that you're starting to to see the flaws in some other arguments and and you know we're generally trying to build our own picture of issue by issue topic by topic subject by subject as you do with the books that you read um and the i, I think it's it's big tech it's social media is just designed to, to just push you into an echo chamber. It's just pushing you. You're either woke or you're anti-woke. You know, you can't just be human being with different opinions. Like, it, it's going to feed you this or it's going to feed you that. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, and it's great that you've identified that. And, and as you, you know, take trigonometry th forward, um, and this is how I, I say it, for example, for me, another, it's not exactly speaking to that, but I got invited to every news 
thing on, on under the sun and i've been very careful to like not go on to certain shows because i i you know i don't need to like certain, i can play to now the anti-woke crowd very easily um but i don't because I, I don't want to play that game at all i don't want to engage that game i want to i know what it's like to lose my integrity and i want to fucking keep hold of it keep hold of my bloody soul and and just kind of see above it and see and not play quick you know games which you're in a tricky position because you're building a business, so you kind of need to play quick games. But at the same time, people the, will see through you in the long run. We yeah, never, we never looked games. at it like that, man. We never ever looked at it like that. Yes, of course. Now we have staff and people helping us make the show. We've got to make sure that we've got a salary to pay them. Mm. But we think of it as the integrity that we try to maintain. And look, we're human beings, and we're fallible. But it's the integrity that attracts people. So when we say this is our opinion and now we've changed it, for example, because we've changed our opinion, that to me is what people recognize yeah. in us as human beings. And you hope that there's an audience out there for that. But it's like when I started comedy, I, people would always ask me, you know, comedians are desperate to succeed and whatever. And I always said, if I can't do the comedy that I want to do, I don't want to be a comedian. It's part of the reasons I don't do comedy now anymore. I feel like I've got more interesting things to do. You know, uh, I, I don't want to play. I don't want to play to any crowd. You know, do you not find that crowd though? The crowd finds you, and the crowd I'm interested in playing. And I suppose if there is one, is the crowd of people who are interested in exploring ideas and making up their mind on an issue by issue, and still retain that genuinely liberal feeling of, I'm interested in hearing people that I don't agree with. Mm. You know. That's the goal for us. I think you've done you've you've done well at that, inviting a kind of range of people. Yeah, we're not interested. In, I'm not interested in being a partisan. I'm not interested in being a partisan, left, right, or whatever it may be. It's an easier path to take. Much easier because you find your tribe and you can agree. And we're built to seek the tribe. We're built to be part of the tribe. Mm. That's how we are, mm. evolutionary speaking. But I don't want that. I'd, I'd much rather be a part and actually have my own thoughts and my own views and my own sense of integrity than to be part of a group where I have to become disingenuous and lie not only to other people, but more fundamentally to myself. But I, I am going to ask this question because I think... Sorry, go for it. and then. Well, to, I found that with now launching my new podcast and the people I've got on, it's a range of people. I think, I think probably all my guests are liberal, if not progressive. I don't think I have any conservatives yet, um, but what? But and I certainly don't agree with them on everything mm -hmm. um, to different degrees. But I want to make them look good because they're humans, and uh, because uh, there's no reason, even if I disagree with someone, that they uh, they they sh they aren't an interesting and and, and nice person uh, that should be given the time. And I think that that's that vilification that happens when you get into the tribal stuff. It's so cheap. It doesn't need to be like that. That's, you can be mates. Like Everyone at home's got mates who they disagree with massively, but they don't let that get in the way of their friendships. It should be the same on, on these sort of shows. I think that's starting to die out, Winston. What, you what you said about people having mates that they disagree with. Oh, I actually agree. I agree with you on that. Yeah, I think that used to Since be... Since 2015, it. it's like... You know. It's been very... You know, uh, yeah, I think sadly that's going, that's starting to ebb away. The the question I was going to ask is: is the artist 
I'm someone who's always been a big fan of art, music, film, whatever else. Why do we now believe that the artist has to be a good person? When did we start judging the artist for their actions and not for the art they produce? He's asking you to defend pedophiles. <laughs> <laughs> well, the example I went to my head was R. Kelly because I friggin' love that song Ignition, but... No, it's a banger. It's a banger. still is. Mm. Do, you have any, do you have any moral qualms listening to that song? No, I don't. I think this idea that we should judge artists and say that, you know, if they have done reprehensible things, which many of them have done, suddenly we can't have access to all the beautiful things that they've created. I find ridiculous. Like, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Lewis Carroll, probably a paedophile. Probably. Everything that we know about him. Allegedly. Allegedly, right. We're going to get sued <laughs> by the Lewis Carroll <laughs> Foundation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll get a message in my Twitter. Yeah, to, yeah to eliminate that. Take it down. Right. Created one of the most brilliant works of children's literature in Alice in Wonderland. I want to have, I want to have children... If I have a, a little girl, I will read her Alice in Wonderland because I think it is a book of brilliance. It, it just is. And I taught it. Every every primary school class I had, I taught we, we read Alice in Wonderland together. It is a magical book. Is there any artist that's committed a crime too much for you to enjoy their work or sponsor their work? Because that's another line, is if you know that by listening to them or watching them that they're getting paid and that, that money is then fueling insidious behaviour or inappropriate, immoral shit, mm. then that's, that's, that's is, that, is there a line there for you? Because, you know, no. you can talk about people who are dead, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. It's, you know, but... I, 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 I don't I'm wanna, much I don't more wanna... ambivalent about it. Mm. I also think it depends on what you're talking about. For example, if you look at someone, the music may be different somewhat, but comedy, how you experience a comedian's material depends very, very much on what your perception of their character is. It's one of the reasons someone like Jimmy Carr gets into a lot more trouble than someone else doing the same jokes because Jimmy Carr presents a kind of fairly normal person on stage. He's not vulnerable. He doesn't talk about himself. It's all, there's no authenticity to it. It's just jokes, right? And so people look at the joke on it, on, on its own. And he, he's not necessarily the most likable persona on stage either. Whereas if you took someone like Jerry Sadowitz, who says things that are way worse than what uh, Jimmy Carr says, but he he's his persona on stage is someone who's completely mental. Right and very one vulnerable and very sort of unhinged, and that means he can get away with stuff that someone else can't. So the knowledge, for example, that someone is a sex pest or whatever, changes how you experience the joke they might do about that issue, right? Mm. So I don't think it's as simple as 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 just going, well, you know, the art and the artist are separate. Well, on some some issues, some situations they are, and then some of them not. It's it's much more complex, and I, I don't have an answer. I just know that it's not a simple answer. Mm. What do you think? Um, I, I probably... There's, I can't really think of an artist that I wouldn't listen to. I would still listen to R. Kelly. But R. Kelly's... R. Kelly's the only one, because as far as I understand it, and this is... I'm not sure if this is actually right but he, he's an interesting example because he's someone who's still alive who still profits 
when you listen to his music. However, I, I don't think he's still engaging in that behavior. So you're not funding, you're not fueling that necessarily. But the idea that uh, artists are infallible and moral, moral, uh, morally sort of untouchable is insanity. And so um, you can't, there's no art you can listen or engage, engage with or enjoy at all if, if they have to be a good guy, because no one's a good guy. But, but even more, to me, art comes from, fl from flawed people. If you think about some of the greatest, the greatest songs, the greatest art, literature, it, a lot of it stems from pain. And when someone's in pain, quite often they inflict it on other people, whether they intend to or whether they don't. An artist is never a well-put-together person when they're at their creative peak. So to then expect them to be this flawed, perfect person who's then producing incredible works of art, to me, the entire thing doesn't make any sense. It's completely incongruous. I just, I just see the way that we're putting artists on a pedestal now and expecting them to be perfect, both in what they create and in their private lives and in their political opinions and in who they are. It's completely ridiculous. Agreed. And I've never, I've never, let, so let's say political opinions, because that's maybe where it's most relevant to my life. I have no problem listening to, like, Marxist, communist musicians, um, like, that. even though it's obviously an abhorrent and, and completely immoral uh, political uh, ideology uh, that's killed hundreds of millions, doesn't mean I can't enjoy the music. I have no problem separating um, th those things. But I don't think that that's the case for everyone. I think that we're in a period where it's not the art that's judged, it's the, it's the person by whatever kind of, whatever the, the faddy morals of the day are. Hey Constantine, do you believe every business needs cyber security to succeed? Yes, of course, because otherwise Uncle Vlad will hack the hell out of it. Wouldn't that be a gross violation of international law? In Putin Russia, we don't have law. Well, if you don't live in Russia, then Pocketseam is the company for you. If you have a business that needs protecting from the unscrupulous elements of the internet, then make sure to check them out. Unscrupulous elements? That is no way to talk about my family. Pocketseam also provides free resources if you follow them on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want to keep costs manageable, you can also pay for their services on credit. Pocketseam is the best and most cost-effective cyber defense company in the world. I tried hacking them and all I got was international sanctions. If you want to protect your company at a reasonable price, then go to pocketseam.co.uk. That's P-O-C-K-E-T-S-I-E-M.co.uk and get your company protected by the best in the business. Well, let me ask you this, because um, <laughs> you're a religious person and a lot of people have made the comparison that the, 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 the thing we're going through now is a sort of new religion, if you like, uh, but one that has no forgiveness and has no redemption of any kind. Do you think that's what it is? Do you see sort of religion or cult-like features in what's happening now? Uh... <laughs> 
I certainly think, and bring it back to the book that's got me in trouble on the like topic topic of Antifa. I do think when you look at, I do feel sorry for these these kids who are engaging in this stuff. And and one reason is that that they've replaced where they don't have a god or a, a ritual or a community like that that religion brings in the church. They replace it with this other thing, which brings them tremendous meaning. Um, and and so there is a that that is there's one of the kind of consequences of, of God dying in, in in modern times. So I do I do agree with that. Um, and I do think that I mean I've written about this a bit as well. But good faith and the and just remembering that we're all flawed. There's I'm trying to work out why why that is not what so many of my friends still talk about goodies and baddies like <laughs> it like life is a disney film but even a disney film's got more nuance than that mm. um and but i'm trying to work out i've been just thinking about why is it that that um that's that so many people see the world because that's not christian thinking at all mm. um christian is, is, is very much that we're all the thought is that we're very much all flawed mm. um uh, and part, one of the reasons is maybe I think we've been taught history really wrong, like um, with Nazism, it's, which everyone learns in school, which they should learn in school. Um, it's, you know, Nazis bad, uh, Brits good, um, or, or, or allies good rather. And and so and, and because that's quite an easy story to tell, perhaps that's one of the ways we see the world, and that's maybe why. Nazi is the word that comes up so often when you're having political arguments. Like if you're, you're pro-Brexit, you're a Nazi. That that was happening a lot of that kind of. But actually, and the other side do it as well. Oh, you're a kind of uh, Remainer fascist. You know, there's it's not just one side doing that. Um, uh, I, I wonder if that. And, and before the interview started, kind of a little bit toward the idea of like communism. Why is that so difficult to teach? And is that taught? And you're both from from uh, communist backgrounds. I don't think it's difficult to teach at all. Do no. you not? No, it's not difficult to teach at all. I think it is very difficult to teach. Why do you think it's difficult to teach? Because the, the thing I hear so often is, uh, uh, even from friends, intelligent friends my age, are like, oh yeah, well, it's, it's um, uh, conceptually brilliant. It's just, in practically speaking... That's what I think. No, but that's nonsense. It's conceptually, it's... It's, it's fails to take shit. into account human nature and its utopia. So, and that, so conceptually, it's nonsense. Uh, you know what? I take back what I said. You're right. It is conceptually nonsense. What I mean is it's well-intentioned uh, with some people. Some people. I'm not even sure it's well-intentioned. For some people, it is. For some people, it's not. For, for, some, some, for some, some people, it's just about the opportunity to turn the tables and to be the authoritarian at the, at the top telling other people what to do. I'm at the bottom now, I want to switch everything so I end up on top. And a lot of the people who led the Russian Revolution were motivated by that. But some of them were also motivated genuinely by a desire to uplift people and to share and, 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 and whatever. I yeah, think there is some good... Yeah, society. There's no one who doesn't, really. Well, there's, <laughs> there's well, probably there's a, a couple, few people who don't. Yeah. No, but you're most right. Most people do. But and I don't think don't... communism is very difficult to teach. I could teach communism to a class of kids in an hour. I'd like, to, I'd like to be in on that class. It's very easy. All you do is you take some resources like sweets or whatever and you you get get some of them to produce them, let's say, to make them or whatever, and then you distribute equally to everybody. See what happens. 
See what happens. See what happens when one person sits in a corner doing fuck all and one person is doing all the work and then you distribute everything equally mm. over and over. And then the person who did nothing gets to demand from that other person what they should and shouldn't do. See what happens. It's not that hard to teach. The reason we don't teach it is historical, in my opinion. You asked me this before, that's why I'm answering. We needed Soviet, the Soviet Union to win. We, the West, <laughs> right? The West needed me, the Soviet Union, if you like. Um, I'm getting very confused now with my <laughs> The West needed the Soviet Union to win the war and to defeat Nazism. Mm -hmm. And because of that, it meant that they were willing to turn a blind eye to all the atrocities. Uh, and Curiously, all, Churchill all didn't, by the way. Churchill did Churchill was, yeah. he, throughout, if you read him throughout that period, he's like, this is, we've made a deal with the devil here. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But uh, if you, this is one of the, the, my favorite things, people who read Orwell obviously read 1984 mm -hmm. and Animal Farm, etc. But if you read the preface to Animal Farm, uh, he talks about how difficult it was to get it published because criticizing the Soviet Union at that time, which of course Animal Farm does very directly, was seen as one ought not to do this thing. It's called, I think, uh, On Censorship is his essay, which mm. I recommend everybody read. Um, you, you, you know, it was a pragmatic decision. Um, and also, people in Britain, people in America were not affected directly by uh, communism for the most part. They, how, many, how, many, how many British people died fighting against communists? How many British people were uh, taken to concentration camps by communists? How many British people were repressed by communists? Very, very few. Well, the story is even worse than that. And it's from your, your great, mighty guest, Charles Udy. Who you recommended. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Whose book, um, Labour in the Gulag, should, should be re mandatory reading, I think, in schools in Britain. Um, but the the period, the, the feeling at the time um, uh, after the Russian Revolution, f and for a long time afterward, was you mustn't criticise uh, the, the the socialism and communism in Russia uh, because um, it's you know we've got to support it. So even when there were stowaways on ships of the timber that was being uh, cut down by um, uh, gulag uh, prisoners, slave labour. Sla you know, the timber itself had had carvings like help um, in Cyrillic or whatever, so obviously they couldn't really read it. But there were actual stowaways that ended up in Britain, and that stuff was ignored so that the revolution could be supported. But I don't think it's difficult to teach. No. I don't think it's difficult to teach. No, as someone who's got a teaching background, it's, it's relatively simple to teach. You Your so? big mistake is doing it with sweets because the little fuckers would eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, e even better, what, what you do is you get them to all to make something, then you get them all to sell it, make the money, yeah. and then you split it equally between people who've done absolutely nothing yeah. and, and yeah. people who's, who worked hard. See how long that lasts. That is going to last about a day, mate. It's not, it's not hard to teach. It's just about being willing to teach. Yeah. But again, the example, well, not again, but the, you're not, it's not a, you're, you're, it's a practical thing. So you're still not articulating why communism bad's there. You're just saying, try this, kids. Whereas with Nazism, you could be like, or you, and you are like, this was an evil ideology where they, they prioritize race over common humanity, mm. and these were the consequences. Whereas you still haven't. And, uh, well, that part is, if you mean what is the intellectual argument against communism, that I don't find that difficult to articulate at all. I just think if you're going to teach people practical ways of doing it are usually much better because they experience it directly. 
right? Uh, but intellectually, um, the idea that that uh, that we should pretend that human beings are not aspirational, that human beings are not hierarchical, that human beings didn't evolve to seek to be more successful than other people in society, and that that is a healthy desire in a very large way, which is why we live in a in a in a in in this world instead of mud huts, right? I don't think that's difficult to explain to people. And whenever Francis talks about his experience of Venezuela, or I talk about, and as I do in my upcoming book, about communism or the experiences, I haven't found many people who've struggled to understand that. What I have found is that even very well-educated people here in the West have absolutely no fucking idea what actually happened in the Soviet Union, what actually happened in China, what actually happened mm. in Venezuela, what actually is happening in Cuba, what actually is happening. They just don't know. It's shocking, uh, uh, you know, knowing educated adults who have never heard of Mao. Yeah. Mm. And I wonder what the polls are there if you, if you look at, like, who, you know, who was Stalin, who, who are these people? And I bet it'd be appalling, like, there's just no education on it. But no you see, the problem it. is, is that we don't prioritise the teaching of history at schools. Mm. We touch on it very, very lightly, right the way through primary, right the way through secondary. You get what? An hour of history education at school? What, total? Uh, yeah, every week. <laughs> every that week. is bad. Yeah. An I mean, hour a week. You get, that, a, that, yeah. you get an hour, maybe two hours a week, which if you look at the practicalities of school, it's five minutes to get the kids in, set up the lesson, then five minutes to pack away at the end. So 50, 45 minutes of quality teaching. I mean, really, can you go into depth into any particular subject? Not really. So the reality is we, we just don't teach history. Most people have a very, very poor and limited grasp of history. And that's the reality of it, which is the reason a lot of the time where you saw, like you saw people marching down the street during the BLM demonstrations saying things like abolish capitalism. And, you know, I had lots of friends, uh, who, you know, who were in the comedy industry. They were neither intelligent nor well-educated, but we're going to skip past that. And they were saying things, you know, like, oh, this is great. And I go, do you, do you know what that means? Do you actually know what that means? Have you ever seen capitalism abolished? And they would just look at me and I'm just like, so why do that chant? Unless you know what that chant means, unless you know the implications of that chant, unless you know what effects that's going to have on society and the people around you, don't do the chant. And that's the problem. Because what it is, is a utopian fantasy. It's a utopian fantasy. And you're asking people to believe in this utopian fantasy. But like all utopias, it doesn't lead to a utopia. It leads somewhere incredibly dark. But because people haven't been educated about it, you can lead them down the path. I'll, I'll, give, I'll tell you the story. Um, I used to live in Wimbledon. And there was a coffee shop down the road from me. And it was run by a Cuban guy. And every week I would go in and we'd sit down. And I'd pick a moment when the coffee shop was empty. And we'd sit down together, eat and talk politics. And it was always one of the highlights of my week. And I remember talking to him. His name was Joel. And he was, and I was saying I was really frustrated because at that point the, I could feel comedy, the comedy industry marching ever more leftwards and it was really starting to frustrate me. And he said to me, I remember him saying to me, he said to me, Francis, trying to explain why communism is bad to someone who's never really experienced it 
is like saying to somebody who's always lived in a wonderful area, don't go down that path. Don't go down the alley. He said, it's only when you feel the punch across the back of your head, it's only when you feel the blood in your mouth that you ever truly understand what communism is. So there is that element. This it. is the point I was trying to make earlier, though. It's much easier to teach why Nazism's evil than to teach why communism, because the both of you are mixing the case to teach how communism is bad. You have to like show it practically. No, not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily. You can teach it. It's a little bit more tricky because Nazism, it's so obvious. You just say how many people died in concentration camps, etc. Okay, et okay, but but I'm going to argue with you here. Let's say how many people died in gulags. It's more than in the Holocaust. The Holodomor, which was the deliberate starvation of people in, in, in the western parts of, of the Soviet it Union, the... killed more people than the, than the Holocaust. Did it? Yes, it was over 7 million. That's yeah. the official figure confirmed by the Russian parliament. It was fine. Right. It's more, and probably a lot more. Uh, so, But there was also the racial element to it, which is just... Yeah. You know, and that, for whatever reason... Yeah. That invokes a stronger reaction in us. It does. It's true. It's true. But let's look at the figures, man. Yeah, I agree. Let, let's look at the figures. So if you, if you, the problem is, um, this is one of the things as well. Is historically, what happened with Germany after Germany lost World War Two, is there was a very, very, very thorough denazification program. Mm. If you were a German and you wanted to go and get a food parcel from the Allies to survive, which you needed to to survive, you'd go and have to see a movie about what happened in the camps. That's what they did. They made you watch that, right? Did that happen in, in Russia in 91? No, no. And the people who run Russia are the direct inheritors of the very people who did the gulags. The same people who used to be in the KGB, they now run the country. So that's another reason. There was no decommunization thing. There was in, in some parts, in the Western parts, in I think Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they did something about that. So I, I just think it's not, so, it's not so much that it's difficult, it's just that it hasn't been done. Uh, I don't know why that is. Do you, think, do you have any thoughts on why that is? Yeah. I don't think it's difficult, man. And, and whenever we talk to people, people who are not necessarily open-minded to our way of thinking, when you tell them what it was like, they understand. They understand. But it's like a lot of everything that's happening in society now. If you believe in utopias and you care more about virtue signaling than truth, and you care more about I, your idea of what's right instead of what actually works, yeah, that's what you're going to end up. You're going to end up believing in all this stuff. You know, uh, Francis and I have been talking about this a lot. You know, we, we, we're living through a period when uh, people are really embracing utopianism again. I don't, I don't know necessarily why. Um, but I think that's a big part of it. It's a big part of why these ideas are coming back. Uh, maybe it's because we're so comfortable now that we can afford to be oblivious to reality. We can just be fucking, you know, sailing away with our thoughts in our own heads. It's also because it's a simple solution to complex problems. If we do this, then we're going to reach a promised land. When the reality is there is no promised land. And maybe these problems that we're faced with at the moment Maybe they, they certainly don't have simple solutions. Or even worse, maybe there are no solutions. Maybe this is just what it is. Well, look, we at something like, look at something like our conversations around racism, for example. Does anyone who's actually thought about it for more than two seconds think that a society 
of human beings who evolved to be suspicious of foreigners and of others will ever get to a point where there is no racism in society. There's not a single racist person ever. Are we ever going to get to that place? No, but that doesn't mean it's not worth trying to deal with those issues. Right. In fact, agreed. one must. And um, Yes, agreed. Uh, the problem is, uh, so, so I absolutely do think racism should be you know, fought against and combated. But I didn't say it shouldn't be. See, this is, this, is where, this is where we get into the problem, right? I never said it shouldn't be dealt with. I said, are we ever going to get to a point where there's not a single racist left in society, right? And the problem is, and actually Peterson, who, who talks about this a lot, is the first 95% of the problem is usually solvable with pretty simple and normal means. Mm. The last 5% takes an awful amount of social engineering to get to. Right. And so we've now got to a point where I think most of the normal ways of dealing with the issue of racism have been exhausted. And you are now doing things that are actually counterproductive, not you personally, you, us, the society, right? Where we are, we've got to a point where we think that just chastising people for saying the wrong word is going to make them less racist. Well, let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the evidence. Since 20, since Obama was elected, have race relations improved? No, they haven't. The more we bang on about institutional racism and the more we talk about all of this stuff, the more difficult this conversation becomes. Mm. There's another problem is that the solutions are wrong. And this is an example I gave in, in my piece with Barry uh, a couple of weeks ago, which, which was, uh, there was a BBC, I was, we were still with the band and we, we did a show with BBC Orchestra and the producer in preparation was insistent on um, doing, uh, having a racially diverse uh, orchestra, which of course is nothing at all wrong with having a racially diverse orchestra, um, although uh, her approach was that it should be, uh, that, that, that the orchestra would be chosen by their immutable characteristics rather than their hard work and, and skill. And a lot of people would argue, yeah, that's how you deal with racial inequality. And, 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 and I'm absolutely prepared to uh, uh, agree that, that, there, that there is racial inequality, but I wouldn't say that then picking people by the, the color of their skin is the answer. Blind uh, right. auditions would be the answer. But here's but where people we come don't back even, to my point. So the solutions are all exactly. out of whack. Exactly, but that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. You're reinforcing the point that I'm making, am, which yes. is if you start discriminating against some group in order to correct past mistakes, are you going to create less racism or more racism? Mm. If you keep discriminating against the majority of people in this country... I felt this so much because I... Uh, for a period, I was going back and forth between England and, and America, and that country is so racialized, and they, they see everything through the prism of race. Not, and obviously, I'm generalizing about a hell of a lot of people, but it's by compared compared to British uh, society, and, and in the last couple of years, we're we're taking that on, which is just horrible. Like, yeah. uh, moving back to England, I was like, oh, thank God, I've escaped that kind of racialized nightmare um, of, of seeing the world through that that lens when when I think beforehand I thought Britain was pretty good at, at not you know well right uh, but let me and there was racism in society before but let me ask oh you, of course there's racism of course, but let me ask you this right because how do you get people 
from different racial groups to get on better. How do you do that? We were, we visited a friend of ours who watches trigonometry and she was telling us about a plumber that comes around to her house who also now, thanks to her telling him something, watches trigonometry. And she was saying, oh, he's like, oh, I love that interview. I love, yeah, you know, they explore such different topics. But the only thing I'm not sure about is the Jews. Big labor man. <laughs> <laughs> and Francis was kind of like, sort of, I, I don't know what your reaction to it was exactly, but my reaction to it was good, good. This person has some kind of thing that he's got about the Jews, right? And now he's watching a show hosted by a Jewish man, right? Co-hosted by a Jewish man and enjoying it. And before he knows it, he's going to go, oh, maybe, maybe the, he'll start with maybe they're not all like that, right? That's where we start. And then he will continue down the path. It's intermarriage. It's living together. It's being friends. It's having mates who are Muslims. It's having mates who are Jewish. It's having mates who've come from another country who are dark-skinned, light-skinned. That's how you solve racism. You don't solve racism by chastising people, by insulting people, by telling them that they should be discriminated against because people who looked like them 200 years ago did something that you now don't like. That was accepted all around the world as the normal way of doing things, by the way, right? You don't solve racism by doing that. You make it worse. And that's why you're seeing the racial tensions increase instead of decrease. Because you're, you're creating it. You're creating it. You know, and, and it does my head in, and that's why I'm so against it. So in the sense that I am anti-woke, I am very anti-woke for this reason, because they're making things worse. Agreed. Great interview. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what, you said, you said you wanted to ask us questions, so we're yeah. giving you a bit of... Yeah. So, we finally come to the end of the interview. Before we ask you, not only our last question, but also our questions for our supporters. Yeah. Plug the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, I am uh, following your footsteps, mm -hmm. starting my own show with The Spectator, interviewing comedians, actors, writers, everyone in the creative industries uh, to try and work out what the uh, difficult totemic issues are which you've been doing, but I'm looking more specifically, I guess, at the arts. And uh, so far we had Ignat Solzhenitsyn, which was Alexander, who is Alexander's son, uh, speaking about uh, his work as a composer and conductor in the classical music world. And uh, also he's an expert on his father's work. And uh, we talked about Live Not By Lies, which is the essay Alexander published right before uh, leaving and got a little bit of a disagreement because, you know, th this essay is like, if you don't stand up for what you believe, you're a cock, not a cock, <laughs> you're, a, you're a coward, you're a um, craven. And, um, and, and Ignat sort of made the case that it wasn't actually that strong. It was more of a gentle plea. Um, but anyway, that was very interesting. And David Badil, we spoke about Jews Don't Count, his uh, book. Um, I, I do think anti-Semitism is one of those serious issues. Um, uh, Anti-Semitism is uh, like Israel-Palestine as well, is one of the, Israel-Palestine is an example of uh, a topic that the creative industries are completely orthodox on. Mm -hmm. And actually, unlike other issues, it's a bit more of an anti-establishment position. Mm -hmm. uh, but 
I think last year there was the Musicians for Artists, there's over 600 musicians signing this anti-Israel declaration. Uh, 1,500 artists uh, signed another, uh, another similar such thing. And it's, it's like, whoa, it's really anti-Israel. Um, uh, and um, uh, then anti-Semitism, I think, is, is certainly linked to that, but there's, there's another issue. Um, uh, that needs to is one of those sort of difficult topics, and 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 um, even hearing that uh, I've heard from Jews privately and, and uh, who are very nervous, even if they're uh, not pro, um, that you know they're, they're skeptical about Israel, they feel like when that topic comes up, they have to keep quiet mm. because it's one of those um, issues uh, that that really sort of angers and is very divisive. Um, and spoke to Don McLean. Apparently, he saw it all coming. If you listen to the song American Pie, uh, he he's um, he saw this this state of the world a long time ago. Uh, and I look forward to listening, man. It sounds yeah. like yeah. a great bunch of guests, and I'm sure you've got plenty more yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. lined up. It's exciting, man. Uh, I'm really keen to see what what happens in the next stage of your journey. Thank you. Um, and you're you know you're working you're working your way through it, and it takes a little time sometimes, mm. you know. Yeah. Uh, to work out exactly what you want to do and how you want to be. And you're a very thoughtful man and you've got plenty of books books to read, I think, as well. Uh, that you Thank you yet. both for, for giving me the time uh, and being so thoughtful in your questions and for letting me plug my um, thing and supporting me in my new... You've been very supportive. For your listeners should know that you two have been very supportive friends uh, behind the scenes as well as in front of them. And, uh, and I'm very grateful for it. And you've been wonderful... Uh, friends with me in this last couple of years so thank you thanks man You're, thank you it's a pleasure to know you um we've got one more question for you before we ask a couple of questions from our audience only but winston the last question we always ask is the same which is what is the one thing that we're not talking about as a society that you think we really should be the thing that pisses me off or not what pisses me off perhaps well certainly occasionally pisses me off but I, I can't quite work out is why the issue of the uyghurs in china uh, where it's the largest internment of human beings on the, the planet at the moment. It's between two and three million, or one and three million uh, Uyghurs in um, uh, camps uh, in Xinjiang. And um, we've got all sorts of heinous, horrific stories of uh, rape and uh, organ harvesting and uh, just the worst possible things you can imagine. And, and it seems to me to be one of the great atrocities happening right now and there's certainly a lot of there's been a decent amount of coverage across the board and and it is one of those issues a bit like hong kong which which seems to in this country be bipartisan in that there's no one it's not a divisive issue it's everyone's pretty much on the same page i mean there are extremes who are hesitant to criticize china uh, but i would say they're the, the extremes um uh, but the, nevertheless, and even though, let's say, w- the Uyghur issues in Hong Kong gets a fair amount of press coverage, I don't think it captures the imagination of uh, my contemporaries uh, and, and peers. And um, perhaps this is because Uyghur culture is so alien. This is another thing, with, uh, maybe one of the reasons why we got so... Um, the George Floyd captured the imagination all the way over here, and it's probably about the same similar distance to how far away the Jingjiang uh, is from here, is because we're so marinated in, in American culture growing up mm. that it feels like our culture. Whereas not only is is Jingjiang a remote province of China, uh, which 
it's com completely un unimaginable, unfathomable to us. Um, but China itself, even though it's the biggest country in the world, is, is I don't think it's something we're educated on at all. Talk about being not educated on communism earlier. We're not educated on China at all. I certainly wasn't. And it's really difficult because the language is very strange uh, or like very different to ours. Uh, it's a difficult, complicated, long history. And, and, and so China, generally speaking, we, I think it's, it's something we should all be striving to understand better. But the, the Uyghur, that specific ongoing tragedy, I think needs more attention. Um, and for any guests who are interested in learning more about the Uyghurs, I recommend following Rahima Mahmoud, who is uh, in Britain. She's a, she's a Uyghur who, uh, she's also a singer um, and she does various performances. We've been working together, putting on cultural events together here in the UK to try and enlighten or, uh, or try and uh, show us the, the, the other side about Uyghurs that isn't just the horrible things that happen to Uyghurs. What is Uyghur culture? What is Uyghur food? There's various Uyghur restaurants across London. There's not many Uyghurs in the UK. I think there's about 500 Uyghurs here. Um, uh, but maybe if we can paint the picture of who they are and their wonderful music, their wonderful traditions, then uh, so that we can eventually push the needle on this horrible, heinous atrocity. Winston, it's been a pleasure. Thank Absolutely. you very much. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, thank you for watching and listening. Uh, before we go, I should just say uh, China is not the biggest country in the world. That's obviously Russia. You meant by population. <laughs> by population. Yes, but we are the biggest. We are the biggest, Winston. <laughs> uh, careful now. Uh, anyway, thank you guys for watching. We are back uh, very soon with another brilliant interview like this one or a raw show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. It's a great pun. Uh -huh. it's, it's a great pun, once. I got it. This is how you do it in comedy, by the way. If they don't laugh, you just make them. Yeah. Uh, Russian way, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.